Hello, I'm Piero Vitelli, and welcome to Dancing in the Line of Fire, a podcast that explores presentation delivery. Please do feel free to contribute your thoughts on Twitter using the hashtag Dancing in the Line of Fire, all one word, and I'll be addressing your comments and questions at the end of the series. But now, let's carry on with Chapter 18, Status. Even though plenty of it exists, I'm not sure anyone actually needs research to prove the extent to which communication is misunderstood in order to believe how common it is. We've all experienced it in so many ways. Waiters bringing food that wasn't ordered, directions that often lead nowhere, instructions for flat-pack furniture that make no sense whatsoever, And, if you've ever advertised anything on Facebook Marketplace, the vast majority of inquiries seem to come from people who have never bothered reading the listing you so carefully prepared to accompany the picture you uploaded. I mean, how hard can it be to understand, this item is for collection only, delivery is not possible? Offence is caused when none is intended. Slights are perceived when none are meant, and sometimes people can be so very strange. So we shake our heads, roll our eyes, and comfort ourselves that we're better than that. Alan Greenspan, the American economist who served five terms as the head of the US Federal Reserve, famously once said, I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realise that what you heard is not what I meant. Basking in our sense of righteous indignation, we often overlook the fact that, at least some of the time, the problem must be ours too. And so perhaps a much more useful way for a presenter to think about misunderstandings and communication is to remind ourselves that if you haven't heard it, then I haven't said it. As this podcast series deals exclusively with presentation delivery and neither the creation of content nor the structure of a narrative, it's perhaps easy to imagine that confusions such as those previously mentioned can't be addressed here as they need to be resolved during the planning and crafting stages of a presentation. But is that true? There is so much meaning that can be created, altered, superimposed and blended into a single word just through the way we deliver it. To take a common example that you will almost certainly have seen, either by sending it in a message or receiving it in one, think about the word yes. It's a simple agreement, indication of acceptance or affirmation of support. Yeah, Y-E-A-H, is a grudgingly given compliance with, sometimes, just a hint of sarcasm. Yep, Y-U-P, is perhaps a slightly testy or impatient acknowledgement of something so obvious as to be hardly worth mentioning. Yes, Y-E-S-S-S-S, seems to me to be pure boredom dressed up in an elongated syllable, gathering its belongings and heading out of the door to somewhere far more interesting. We can choose our words carefully, which allows the creation of a compelling narrative. 
we can deliver it with specific activities designed to affect our audience. But, as the rather peculiar politician Jacob Rees-Mogg so effortlessly demonstrates time and time again, if our true intention happens to be at odds with the polished impact we're trying to create, the incongruence often gives us away. As we explored in Chapter 4, the intention we have manifests through the activities we use when delivering the words, phrases and sentences that make up the narrative of a presentation. But there's also something else we need to consider, something usually linked to the feelings of humiliation and rejection that lurk just beneath the surface for a presenter, something called status. It's a word with many meanings and ways of pronouncing it, but whether you say status or status, in this instance it has nothing to do with social class, wealth, success, or any other external trapping that we might use to categorize ourselves. It is the extent to which we choose to submit to or exert dominance over another. Anyone can adopt a higher or lower status when interacting with anyone else, something beautifully depicted in Ridley Scott's epic film Gladiator, in which Russell Crowe plays a general who becomes a slave, before being sold as a gladiator who then defies an emperor, and yet maintains a high status in all his interactions throughout. My understanding of it, like everything else in these podcasts, is personal, and therefore open to your challenge and question. It comes primarily from a weekly class at drama school called Interaction, which was one of the most interesting classes I've ever attended, and it was inspired in part by the work of Keith Johnston, a theatre practitioner who for many years has acted, directed, written, and been a pioneer in the art of improvisation. Whilst teaching at the Royal Court Theatre in London during the 1960s, he noticed that actors struggled to reproduce ordinary conversation in a way that seemed as convincing as it does in everyday life. He tried various interventions to help the dialogue feel more natural, but nothing seemed to work. It was always forced. If casual conversations are really without motive, then how can they be reproduced in art, bearing in mind that art is just a contraction of the word artificial? Drama is always so earnest, where things really matter and everyone feels a great deal. It just seems to crowd out the ordinary, the mundane and the usual. As an experiment, he instructed the actors to try to manipulate their status to be just a little bit above or below their partners. They seemed to know instinctively what this meant, and their work was transformed as a result. It now seemed authentic, as every movement and action had motive, and they were faithfully reproducing what Keith Johnston asserts happens in everyday life, except that these subtle manipulations are unseen, except where there is conflict. He argues that they continue all the time, and observes in his book, Impro, that in the park will notice duck squabbling, but not how carefully they keep their distance when they're not. Speaking as someone who used to keep chickens for a number of years, I agree with this and suggest that birds aren't the only animal this applies to. If you find yourself walking down a busy street, you must negotiate other pedestrians. 
Johnston argues that in such a situation, signals are exchanged between people from a distance, which form a sort of status negotiation during which one party will agree to give way or submit to the other. On occasion, this doesn't happen, and that's when you bump into each other. Then, awkwardly, you both move to the same side to get past, before finally resolving the situation with eye rolls, shrugs, apologies and headshakes before then carrying on. Keith Johnston argues that in those situations, the status signals weren't clear, and neither party had agreed to the status role they would adopt with regard to the other. Status is something we have, something we hold dear, and we choose whether we raise or lower it depending on circumstance, need and habit. We don't like it when we feel forced or challenged to alter ours, which can result in situations like the rather infantile stare-off between the writer Will Self and politician Marc Francois, which took place on BBC Politics Live in March of 2019. The adjustments that a change in status can provoke are often really watchable, and it's not just between people that this can happen, as was famously shown during a staged walk on the beach by Neil Kinnock in 1983 at the Labour Party conference in Brighton, when he suddenly had to take evasive action against an incoming wave. The huddle of reporters, invited to record a high-status, leader-in-waiting moment, were treated instead to a low-status tumble in the waves, from which the Labour leader's only way of raising his status was to shake his fist at the press, as he instantly knew the image would probably last longer than his policies. Losing status feels awkward, as anyone who has run to catch a train only for the doors to close at the last moment knows only too well. And this is why making a mistake as a presenter can feel so bad. So let's look at how this works. As a metaphor for having a conversation about books that we've read and enjoyed, imagine that you and I are sitting on a seesaw. We're facing each other, connected through our relationship, and exchange our thoughts in an ordinary way. The seesaw obviously can move, and it represents, in this metaphor, the status that we claim for ourselves and confer on each other. I can lift you up, lowering myself in the process, or I can lower you while elevating myself, and obviously you can do the same. The two things to bear in mind are that we can't be both high at the same time, and nothing can happen without both of us being willing participants. If one of us should get off the seesaw and leave, the interaction would end. Now, let's add an unremarkable but completely possible dialogue and see what happens. What are you reading? I ask. War and peace, you respond. So far, so nothing, as we've just exchanged information with no raising or lowering of status. But look at what now has to happen. Ah, that's my favourite book! I might reply, raising my status through indicating that I've already read it and offering you my considered praise for making what I think is a good literary choice. I could put more clear water between our different statuses by saying, it's hard work, I think you might struggle with it a little bit. I could have taken a completely different tack at the start by saying, wow and lowering myself by making a face recognising the enormity of the task and adding, 
I've always wanted to read that, but never dared. I think you're very brave. The point is that this natural dialogue needs status transactions within it if it is to evolve beyond me acknowledging you saying war and peace by saying oh. And even then, the quality of the way I say oh would imply some kind of status. Oh, meaning wow, or oh, meaning how dreadfully dull. Of course, real life isn't a seesaw, and we could both try to assume a higher status than each other and refuse to submit. But if we did that, we'd quickly create conflict. And if we both submitted to each other and refused to dominate, we'd create the sort of situation that can happen when cars arrive simultaneously at a roundabout and no one is quite sure who should go first. In both these cases, the resolution arrives only when one of us agrees to alter our status. It is, I assert, impossible to do nothing to another person unless we are asleep or absent. And so it follows that if we're not aware of what we are doing or want to do to another person, we might discover that the behaviour we are using is having an impact that we didn't intend. In episode 3, we looked at how we create, from an early age, the many little programmes that support us in our everyday lives and explored how they become carved into our brain as subroutines that we then call up and perform with little conscious thought. These programmes can be functional in that some help us keep our teeth, hair and body healthy despite the toxic onslaught from junk food, air pollution and chemicals that are a part of daily life. Others, such as lashing out or sulking, can be dysfunctional and generally unhelpful. In episode 4, I discussed activities, those moment-to-moment -moment behaviours that we all use throughout our everyday lives, either to get ourselves what we want, to move towards what we want, or to move away from what we don't want. And status plays an instinctive part in shaping the quality of these behaviours, and the more we use them, the more effortless they become, and the harder they are to challenge, revise, or edit. As a result, we become status specialists and habitually we adopt a position on the seesaw during our interactions. Some of us prefer to be high, some low, some quickly walk away when they can't have what they want and others cling on long after the other has left. We do what gets us what we want and as the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result, as a presenter, it might be worth looking in the mirror as status, body language, physicality, voice and quality of presence are all connected. Clint Eastwood, the actor and director, is a good example of a high-status specialist on screen. He might be in the twilight of his career, but the body of work he's responsible for is large, and many people will know catchphrases he's synonymous with, even if they don't know his work. Harry Callahan is a character he played decades ago, a tough cop who used unorthodox methods to get the job done, and who certainly would not be as celebrated a character today as he was back then. Go ahead. Make my day was a line from a film that he said to a suspect while pointing a gun at his head and willing him to provide a reason to shoot. 
it's easy enough to find the clip online, and if you watch all 16 seconds of it, you'll see the actor employ all the habits of what Keith Johnston calls a high-status specialist. His voice is calm, slow and controlled. His head doesn't move. He maintains steady eye contact and doesn't blink. He delivers the line and then waits, his status elevating with every passing second. Imagine him now in the same scene, but using a quick and breathless voice, his head wobbling from side to side, his face contorting with pursed lips, swallowing and breathing noises throughout. His status would plummet, giving the suspect plenty of reason to think he could easily escape. It's rather like imagining the character being played by another actor from the same era, Woody Allen, known for being what Johnston calls a low-status specialist. Almost all the characters he played on film appear fidgety and speak in a quick and staccato manner and avoid eye contact and seem perennially thwarted. These two examples are not real people. They're characters played by actors designed to exaggerate one kind of status for dramatic effect, which they do really well. In more recent years, drama has become driven less by character and more by plot, with a heavy reliance on unexpected twists, suspense and thrills. Status, exclusively high status, is the go-to remedy used to artificially replace the tension that a character-free plot lacks. Television series like Line of Duty are sequences of gritty action which must then be explained by monosyllabic, hushed and unrealistic dialogue before the next mean and moody encounter. To me, the show has no time for the complexity of a character in terms of background, motivation and depth, and is the poorer for it. Real people are far less dramatic precisely because they are more nuanced, unpredictable and likely to flex their status, which I'd now like to demonstrate by returning to the little sketch between you and me about the books we read. What are you reading? I ask. War and Peace, you respond. Ah, that's my favourite book. Is it really? you say in disbelief. Uh, yes, I say. It is one of my favourites. I carry on, uncertainly, under your withering gaze, and then lower my status by saying, of course, I, I mean, I only look at the pictures. Oh, they really do help tell the story, you might say, offering me an olive branch, and then elevating me by saying, but I bet you could read it if you just set your mind to it. Well, perhaps one day I will, I say, composing myself before ending with, but I want to learn Russian and French first so I can read the original. The point of this improvised dialogue from Johnston's book is to demonstrate that the status we claim and confer can, does, and probably should fluctuate according to how we value our needs and desires at any given point, and consider those of the person or persons with whom we're interacting. Just because it isn't explicit or overt doesn't mean it isn't always present. So why is an understanding of status important for a presenter? Well, 
if a presentation is to be more than a discharge of data, if it is to engage, inspire and be memorable, then it is a dialogue and not a monologue. Remembering the sound desk metaphor from episode 6, it's a conversation between one person and lots of individuals gathered together in time and space, and it therefore follows that the more natural it feels, the better it will be. I believe status plays a fundamental part of everyday interactions, and so it is also to be found in the way a presenter might engage an audience before the start, in how they act as the conduit between audience and content, in how they respond to questions, be they simple or challenging, in how they manage an interruption, in how they deal with their own mistakes. The list is endless. The danger with status is clinging to your preferred state and not being willing to flex. I've seen a presenter mask their nerves by adopting a high status on stage and starting their presentation with, Good afternoon. I know you're postgraduates, which means on paper you're intelligent, but I've met many who fail to follow simple instructions, so pay attention, all right? I'm not sure if this was intended as sarcastic humour or to exert authority from the start, but it backfired spectacularly by making sworn enemies of 25 curious researchers who'd been looking forward to three days away from their labs. If we as presenters feel the need to show ourselves to be the expert and in control by pitching our status high above that which we confer on our audience, we will probably alienate them, as they have come to be inspired by us, not fed with crumbs from our table. I've also watched a presenter seek support and forgiveness in advance of a presentation from an audience by opening with, sorry, my slides are a bit of a muddle as I haven't really had time to change them since about a year ago, but hopefully you won't find this too boring and, and anyway, it won't last too long. Clearly an opening designed to be so humble as to make any criticism of it appear cruel, it was an attempt to manage an audience's expectations through a complete abasement of status. If a presenter is more concerned with their own psychological safety rather than the intellectual or emotional stimulation of their audience, they strip them of the ability to engage as an active audience wants to. And if warned not to expect too much, an audience will disconnect from the speaker very quickly and the presentation will probably never recover as they're likely to seek stimulation from their phones, colleagues or imagination. So when thinking about your presentation delivery style, know that status does play a part in it. But I suggest that it's not about it being high or low, rather it's about how it can change and how that change affects us and our audience. Having studied status at drama school, continued to read about it afterwards, and deliberately experimenting with it in different ways as I've developed my presenting style over the years, I think there's something in it. As a presenter who often delivers presentations about presentations, it often falls to me to share some things explicitly with my audience that might be better kept secret. So, status for me is about standing side by side with my audience, pitching my status just above or just below theirs, at times raising it so as to lead them towards a particular point or idea. 
or lowering it so as to validate their challenges or questions, adjusting it in the face of the unexpected and revealing, sometimes through exaggeration or caricature, how it can work. So why not spend some time thinking about what it means to you? Think about how you use it and how it might help you develop your style of presenting with the audiences that you know. Also, think back to the teachers that inspired you when you were younger and think of the presenters you admire today and reflect on their use of it, whether deliberate or intuitive. The chances are that they were and are flexible status specialists, able to raise and lower their status relative to yours in order to command your respect, offer you guidance, provide the support you needed, and abdicate control when spurring you on to develop your own interpretation of their content. A good presenter is, perhaps, a good teacher, and the job is done when the teacher is no longer needed. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this, the penultimate podcast. Next week is the final scripted episode, but don't forget that there's still time to contribute to the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag Dancing in the Line of Fire, all one word, so that I can create a concluding episode that includes and addresses all the thoughts and questions which have cropped up from this series. If you want to find out more about the work I do, then please visit island41.com and I look forward to your company for the final podcast next week. <music>